0: Hi, welcome to The Jam Session. It's your host, John Landis. This is The Jam Session Radio Hour, coming to you from WLIW-FM in Southampton, New York. Uh, Tonight, we've got another treat for you. This is an interview by Dave Schroeder of the NYU School, Steinhardt School, of uh, Marcus Miller, who's um, had a great career, bass player, uh, extraordinary guy. Um, bridged uh, various uh, genres in jazz, and it's a really, really interesting interview. I think one of the things that makes these interviews that Dave Schroeder does at NYU so good is because he's doing them as part of his jazz history course, Uh, and he's, he's usually doing them in front of a live audience of students. And so they're at a pretty high level talking about a life in jazz and a life of a musician, and how people get started and the breaks they get, and how they take advantage of their breaks, and what they do, and who they meet, and um, and Marcus Miller, just like Dave, is uh, he's a real treasure trove of information. Uh, he played with Miles Davis. Um, he's had a long, long career. Um, was on the SNL band early on, Saturday Night Live band. Uh, was on a show called NBC Saturday Sunday Night, which I have to say I don't remember, but I, I'm definitely going to look it up. Sounds like it was another Lorne Michaels-produced show, but really interesting show, and he's got great insights about fusion and jazz and the development of smooth jazz and how fusion developed and how people layered stuff onto their careers and really, really um, interesting things. Um, Just a great guy and a really good bass player. Check out his music. So tonight, here's our interview of Dave Schroeder of the NYU Steinhardt School with Marcus Miller.
1: Welcome to the NYU Steinhardt Jazz Interview Series, and today we have one of the great jazz basses, pop basses, record <laughs> producer, band leader, you name it, Mr. Marcus Miller. Welcome, Marcus. How you doing, Dave? I wanna talk about uh, how you've had such an amazing career uh, for so long. Can you talk, <laughs> uh, you know what, and, and I wanna uh, frame it by saying, I know you grew up in Brooklyn um, and there's an old phrase, um, uh, talent is everywhere but opportunity is not. Mm, Very true. So was there opportunity growing up in Brooklyn? Well, I grew up uh,
2: born in Brooklyn. At the age of 10, we moved to Queens, Jamaica, Queens. And this is a very special area in terms of music. Um, The dynamic of New York housing, was that uh, not every borough, Staten Island, Manhattan, uh, Brooklyn, not every borough had basements in the Mm -hmm. homes, but in Queens and in the Bronx, there were basements. Mm. And this is a big deal because parents encouraged their kids. If their kids showed a little desire uh, to explore music, parents encouraged it, sent them down the basement. That way they know where their kids are. You know, they can hear (laughs) that the kids are downstairs And so we had this basement culture in Queens where if you went one block, you could stand outside on the corner and hear what the other band, what the competition band, what funk songs they were rehearsing, you know, and then you'd run back to your basement and make sure you had that song (laughs) ready to go at the talent show, you know. It was a musical environment. Also, so that was our generation. Also, in Jamaica, Queens, because of the proximity to New York City, a lot of jazz musicians lived in Jamaica, Queens because it was affordable, but you could still get to your gigs. So mm-hmm. at uh, different times we had Count Basie, we had John Coltrane, we had uh, um, Brooke Benton, Lenny White was a mentor of mine, Billy Cobham was there. So it was a really musical environment and so many um, great musicians uh, were there all together feeding off of each other. So, and then you eventually you get to the point where you're ready to do some gigs and Manhattan is right there. So when you talk about opportunity, but on top of that, your father was a musician. My dad uh, plays the piano and the organ. So every Sunday, he was pulling out the stops at the African Orthodox Episcopal Church in Brooklyn. His dad was the minister. And uh, yes, after those services on Sunday, the whole family would go downstairs into the church basement and perform for each other. My dad's cousin was Winton Kelly. So every once in a while, Winton would show up a great incredibly great jazz piano player from the 50s and the 60s and uh, all of our aunts sang so it was a very musical environment so by
1: the time I hit Jamaica Queens I was already primed to be a musician. Well I had read that Wynton Kelly was related to you. Uh, was that uh, your connection to Miles? Well uh, Wynton passed in 1971. I was
2: 11 or 12 years old. Hadn't discovered jazz on my own yet. I just knew Wynton was a great piano player, and he did something called jazz. My dad was a classical guy. My dad played hymns, he played Beethoven, Brahms, and so that was what was happening in my house, and my mom was a Ray Charles fan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I grew up with that, knowing that Winton was great, and I'd hear him play uh, in the church basement on Sundays from time to time. Uh, there's a guy named Kenny Washington who was my classmate in high school. Mm-hmm. Kenny Washington is a great jazz drummer. And uh, I met him in high school at the LaGuardia School. It was called Music and Art at the time. And Kenny heard me playing my little front lines. He said, man, you need to learn how to play jazz. And I said, why? He said, all the great jazz musicians, all the great musicians play jazz. That was a good enough answer for me. So <laughs> I used to go visit Kenny who lived in Staten Island. I used to go visit him every Sunday. And he, he was my age, but he was like this old dude, this old soul, you know what I mean? His father had 5,000 records. And, He would just play me the history of jazz, You know, just said, look, this is Louis Armstrong, this is Duke Ellington, this is Charlie Parker. And I said to him, I got a cousin, man, who plays jazz. You ever heard of Wynton Kelly? And Kenny, and he starts pulling out all these Wynton Kelly records. And he sends me home that first night with cassette tapes full of Wynton Kelly performances. Miles Davis stuff and trio stuff that Wynton did with Paul Chambers and Jimmy Cobb. And I became like a raving Winton Kelly fan, mm. you know. what I mean, I went, and I, of course, now I go home and open up my dad's record collection. Of course, there's all these Winton Kelly records at home that I didn't know about. So, that was my connection to Winton. So Miles knew you were with Winton. Are you? The were first thing Wynton. I told Miles when I met him is that I was Winton's cousin, and he said, "Oh wow, man, he had a beautiful touch." That's did, what he said. Did he have any stories? No, he didn't have. A, he didn't have a lot of stories. It took. It took me a while to get Miles to start telling the stories about the guys. You know what I mean? from the 40s and the 50s. Once I got him going, I got a lot. But it was more about, you know, his memories, his really sharp memories were about that magical time that we all have when we're 19, 20 years old. You know, a lot of us have, a a lot of people have college memories, you know what I mean? At that age, Miles had memories of New York City, you know, searching out Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and and all the guys there. So he talked a lot about
1: that. Well, I want to focus on you, but uh was miles uh open about talking about his early days with parker oh yeah what, what did you... i
2: mean once once you know i had two periods with miles one i was his bass player i played for a couple of years in his band and then i told him i'm going to leave i want to develop as a producer composer stuff and i ended up coming back to him a few years later and working with him on a few albums in the studio and it was just me and him one on one and mm-hmm. that's when i started getting all these stories, but yes, a lot of stories about Charlie Parker, Dexter Gordon, J.J. Johnson, uh, Gil Evans, Bud Powell, he loved Bud Powell, Max Roach. He talked about all those guys.
1: You ever lot. talk about Birth of the Cool? Uh, not so
2: much, because Birth of the Cool was still kind of a fresh memory, because at the same time that I was playing with Miles, he had reconnected with Gil, mm-hmm. Gil Evans, who had done a lot of those arrangements for Birth of the Cool. So. That wasn't a memory, that was like a current thing. He, he was still playing lines on his trumpet and Gil was taking them and transposing them, you know what I mean? Mm. And, and these guys were so tight, you know what I mean? And, and so it was a current thing. So he he wasn't reminiscing about that at the time.
1: The reason I say that is because initially, from what I understand, it would have, should have been Charlie Parker that was supposed to front that band. Okay. And um, he kind of bowed out because he wasn't really an ensemble player, mm-hmm. but they needed somebody who was uh, had a large enough name that would push that forward?
2: That that could very possibly be. He never he never said that. He uh, the only thing he talked about regarding birth of the cool was techniques, arrangement techniques that he wanted me to try to incorporate in what I was doing. You know, he said. You know, Gil used to do an 11 note chord staccato, and just two notes would sustain. Check this out. Bam. Bam. Nice, right? Or he'd say, Listen to this contrary motion. He, he didn't play the piano. All his demonstrations was just atonal because he was just moving his hands on the piano. Mm-hmm. But he was giving me these concepts, and that was, that was what I got from his Birth of the Cool experience.
1: So, how did you become such a, a good or great arranger? Um, well, you know, coming up
2: in Jamaica, Queens, like I was telling you, we had some mentors, and, you know, there's a guy named Denzel Miller who who's, who's, I had a band, he was a band leader, and he said, You are not a complete musician unless you're composing and arranging and you're doing the whole thing. It wasn't an option. A lot of musicians grow up feeling like I'm a musician and some people are arrangers, some people are composers. The guys that I grew up with, you know, said you're not complete unless you're doing it all. So Mm. from a very young age, I was writing my little tunes, you know what I mean, and arranging my neighborhood band. I was making arrangements and doing trial and error. And did you learn stuff at music and art? Yeah, I learned a lot at music and art from the professors, from the instructors, and also from the other kids around. You know what I mean? Like Kenny Washington, who I was just talking about. You know. Then I went to Queens College. I was gonna go to the conservatory, Manus on clarinet, because that was my major in high school. But in that summer between high school and college, I said, man, I don't know if this is the right move for me, going to the conservatory on clarinet. Not a lot of opportunities on the clarinet. And uh, I'm playing bass, I'm not as good a musician on the bass but i'm working all the time you Mm -hmm. know what i mean it it seems like this is the route so instead i went to queen's college and took my orchestration composition courses there too and got a lot of great instruction there also did you finish there no uh like two three years in the instructors were telling me you got to get out of here man i just saw you playing on so-and-so's record and i just saw you i said i need something to fall back on that's what my parents are telling me and one instructor said dude you need to fall forward. You know, you got the, all these opportunities in front of you. You can always come back, you know, that, that whole thing. So uh, once I got the gig with Saturday Night Live in the house mm-hmm. band, I convinced my dad to let me take a break from, from college. And he said, okay. It was funny, man, because I was playing with Roberta Flack at the time and we played a gig at Radio City and my parents came. My dad loved Roberta Flack. And uh, he came backstage, he and my mom and Roberta took my dad aside. He said, Mr. Miller, I was a school teacher. Nobody values education more than me, but I am telling you that your son is immensely talented and you have nothing to worry about. He is going to be very successful. And coming from her, <laughs> that, that did a lot. That that went a long way.
1: Wow, so it goes back to that idea of, of uh, talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. So you could have been as good as you are somewhere in the world and not have ever been seen. So. What was the bridge that allowed you, how did like Roberta Flack, how did all of a sudden you, you're, you're not just playing with these people, but it's probably this led to this, led to this, led to this? Well, there's two things. One is
2: simply growing up in New York, mm-hmm. because a lot of kids, as you say, they're in another part of the world. and At a certain point in their life, they have to make a decision to move to a big city like New York and then establish themselves. By, ten, by the time I came out of high school, by my second year of college, I was gigging all over Manhattan. I was a bass player, and everybody needs a bass player. There were no computers making music, so I was playing on commercials, I was playing on anything that needed music. So that's just kind of something I didn't have control of. I just simply was in the environment. But the second thing is recognizing opportunity when you see it, and you do have control over that. And lots of times, those opportunities weren't paying opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. You weren't getting paid. Somebody says, hey, man, I got a gig at this club and it's, you know, whatever we get at the door, that's gonna be our pay, we might not make anything. And I had a knack for taking gigs that led to other situations, you know? And uh, I think that's, when I talk to young musicians, when I observe young musicians, I can tell the guys who have that knack and the guys who just for some reason don't get it. They, they can't figure out how to make this connect with this. You know, if I were gonna add a third quality to that, it's um, you have musicians who impress the audience, and you have musicians who impress other musicians, you know? And if you were gonna play basketball, if you're gonna use a basketball analogy, the guy who gets the rebounds and delivers the ball, the guy who gets knee in the groin, gets elbowed in the chin, but he's the one who's fighting for the team, and his stats never make it into the, into the box scores, mm-hmm. but everybody on the team knows that without this guy, we wouldn't be where we are. A great bass player who connects the drummer to the rest of the band, a bass player who recognizes that the drummer rushes every eight bars, and instead of having an argument with the guy, rushes with him and then gently pulls him back. These things are, are talents that a lot of musicians never figure out. And that's what causes other musicians to say, hey, you gotta call this kid, Marcus. You gotta call this kid for this, you know, because
1: they love playing with you, you know what I mean, and that's really important. We've worked with so many great artists early on. Were you uh, feeling uh, any sense of intimidation at all?
2: When I would get the calls, you know, we were all part of this service called Musicians Registry, and, and right. there were no cell phones. So if anybody who was looking for you, who didn't know you, need to get in touch with you, they would call the registry and say, I'm looking for Marcus Miller. So you'd call your service a couple of times a day and they'd say, hey, you know Quincy Jones needs you or, or uh, Grover Washington Jr. needs you. And, and so those moments were pretty freaky, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Once the music started, there wasn't a lot of nervousness because for me, music was so important and so organic to me that my only concern was, how do I make this music sound good, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you get to the studio and you're unpacking your instrument, you have to make small talk with McCoy Tyner that's difficult that's intimidating but once the music starts it was like i'll be nervous later <laughs> i got to make this happen
1: so what's your connect with connection with uh, michael urbaniak in the uh, in the late
2: 70s michael urbaniak was a really heavy presence the new york fusion scene mm-hmm. you know he was from poland and he had a different concept you know fusion musicians had just begun to explore odd meters Uh, John McLaughlin and Mahavishnu and Chick Corea Return to Forever, they were all starting to experiment with this. And here's a guy from Poland who odd meters is like falling out of bed for him because that's part of the actual pop culture, popular culture in Poland, has Mm -hmm. a lot of odd meter stuff in it. So he brought this influence to New York. And for some reason, he would hire, like, funky cats and then force them to play these odd meter things. You know, we're all used to playing on the one. And he's got us playing in 9, 8, 11, 8. Very simple, And we're like, you know. But for me, it was a great challenge. And uh, we had a great band, man. We had um, a drummer named Yogi Horton, who played with Luther Vandross for many years after. Uh, Kenny Kirkland was in Mm -hmm. the band. He was a piano player and myself, man. And we really had some great experiences with Michael. He's always, he always had a gig. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we were playing at Beefsteak Charlie's, <laughs> you know, on Fifth <laughs> Avenue in front of a plate glass window with people passing us by. But we were working all the time. Michael, his wife at the time was Ursula Dudziak. And so uh, we just played all over New York, you know. I was 18, 19 years old at the time. It was a great experience. Wow.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. This is WLIW-FM in Southampton, New York, Long Island's only NPR station. Uh, also heard on WLIW.org radio and 88.3 FM if you're in the East End. Continue to stay tuned with us as the Jam Session Radio Hour is exploring an interview of Marcus Miller.
1: So you talk about uh, the, the title fusion or the, the moniker fusion. How has that changed over the years? Because I was watching some interviews with you with uh, uh, Ramsey Lewis, for instance, and, uh, and uh, he was calling what you play contemporary jazz. Mm-hmm. So it's moved between fusion, contemporary, smooth jazz, whatever. Yeah, man, I don't know, man. Those are just,
2: Those you know, are I, I say fusion just because it, in the 70s there was a very specific mix of musical styles that was very easily identifiable and marketed as fusion. But in a broader sense, jazz is inherently fusion. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just taking you know, the elements from Europe that they, that they got hit with, the slaves got hit with it when they were down in areas like New Orleans and combining that with the African rhythms and the Caribbean rhythms, and it was just like America. It was a, it's a mix of all these styles. Mm-hmm. And so um, I will talk about fusion in the 70s and we know we all know what that means, you know. That's right. that's you know, weather report and those guys. But fusion, in general, as far as I'm concerned, that's the heart and soul of jazz. And um, I think without that, this music would have been over a long time ago.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think we're about the same age. Um, and when I was growing up, it was like Return to Forever and Weather Report and Oregon and. Mm-hmm. And uh, so many of those groups that, that had really fused the new music through maybe through Miles mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, that was that was pretty significant. That was pretty deep music, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of that sound the the intention remained, but the depth kind of left. You know, when we move into uh, CD 101, mm-hmm. when that station started, it was. Uh, it was some pretty uh, significant music that slowly got funneled into maybe one or two things.
2: Well, the thing about original fusion was that, you know, let's say, let's talk about the elements that made fusion in the 70s. We'll talk about rock music, we'll talk about jazz music, maybe uh, funk, R&B, okay? In the early original days of fusion, whoever the artist was, he was one of the top in the world at one of those styles, Mm -hmm. okay? Chick Corea, Joe Zavano, Wayne Shorter, Miles Davis, Tony Williams, these are some of the early, early fusion musicians. They were all like the best musicians in jazz at the time. So it's like Italian cooking. When they tell you how to cook in Italian, they say, the most important thing is to come up with the great ingredients, right? Have great ingredients, then you don't have to do so much work. Just put them together, it's going to be great. And so, the first generation of fusion musicians were either great jazz musicians or great rock musicians like Jeff Beck, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They were great something. They were top of the field at some other style that they were using, and they were taking other influences, right? That made a very special mix. Second generation were guys, in my opinion, who played decent funk, decent rock, decent jazz, but they weren't incredible at any of the styles. They actually considered themselves fusion musicians Mm -hmm. and that's when the thing started getting watered down you know and then we got another level and then a couple of guys decided to have a light moment a couple of these great musicians had a light moment recorded a light song and the thing went crazy you know what i mean and the record company said here's a million and a half dollars please do that again (laughs) and next thing you know we have this offshoot of um of fusion called you know i think for a while they were calling it get the names man but like contemporary jazz and smooth jazz you know smooth jazz was a name that they came up with in a marketing meeting you know they had a test group they had a bunch of people listening with headphones and feedback biofeedback dials and they said what would you call this music oh it's beautiful man it's relaxing me I would call it smooth jazz which is a jacked up name because it implies that like the other jazz is is rough and difficult and incomprehensible you know what I mean but anyway my main point you could is take that a nap through the whole thing and it wouldn't you work. But you know what? The problem is there were some guys who did the hell out of that. And, you know, a lot of times, stuff that you come up with that's really well done and beautiful gets messed up by the imitators. So that people start blaming you for the horrible imitators. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because when you talk about Pat Matheny, right, or you're talking about some of the stuff that David Sanborn did in the early days, you know. Or, or Bob James, that stuff was killing. You know what I mean? It was it Ahmad was, Jamal, you know what I mean? There was even Kind of Blue. You put that on for dinner, man, that's a good meal. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But what happened was these other guys who maybe aren't as creative, as inspired, whatever the word is, they came in and did their version of that and the thing just started getting watered down to the point where you don't even wanna hear from Bob James anymore, you know right. what I mean? And, and that's an interesting phenomenon.
1: Well, you've worked with Bob James, did you? Yeah, you worked with Bob James, and you worked a lot with Sanborn, and you worked with uh, Grover Washington. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I I think of all those guys as the original guys, and, uh, you know, I haven't talked to Sanborn about this, but what do you think uh, he thinks of this? So many guys sound like him. It messed with his head, man. It messed with his head. I, I kept telling him, man, this is the
2: highest compliment. You are literally the most influential alto saxophonist since Charlie Parker. I'm not talking about because, you know, of course you can imagine his reaction, I like, said, shut up man, that's not even, I said, I'm not talking about style or, or even talent. I'm just talking about how many guys today play like David Sanborn, okay? How many guys play like Cannonball? How many guys play like Jackie McLean? How mm-hmm. many guys play like uh, James Spaulding? You know, how many guys play like all these great alto players? I mean, they're all influential. But, man, you walk into any club anywhere in the world, and if the guy has an alto sax, there's a good chance he's going to be playing those sandborn licks, which was difficult for Dave, man. At a certain point, we went in the studio, because I produced his albums for, like, 15 years. Mm-hmm. We went in the studio, and he said, I'm not playing any of my licks. I said, why not? He said, I, can't. I turn on the radio, and I hear these guys playing my stuff in the wrong, wrong environment, the wrong situation, with the wrong nuance, you know? They just have the sound, and it's just like an automatic, and it's, I'm becoming a cliche, and I have to break out of it, you know? Mm. And I said, why are you going to let other guys kick you off of your own style, you know? But that's how much it affected him. And we went through a whole album where he would get an inspiration to play, he's improvising, He'd get an inspiration to play, and then double-think that and play something else, you know? And uh, so that's how much it affected him. He, he worked his way through it, you know what I mean? And when you hear him now, he's grown, You've, you can see the process, you know? I think another thing with him is that the way he gets to those licks that we all know mm-hmm. is not what you think. You know, you hear an F7 chord and everybody goes, "Oh yeah, da 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 da." No, he's gonna go this way. He's gonna try that. He's gonna try that, and come to that final lick that we know from around the corner. And it always has something extra to it that the imitators don't have. So um, I've seen that with a lot of guys. I saw it with Miles. You know, I saw it with Luther Vandross, you know. Mm-hmm. I had the honor of working with people who were innovators at what they do.
3: We'll
0: So happy you could join us. Uh, Stay with us on WLIW-FM 88.3 in Southampton, New York, Long Island's only NPR station. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and we are interviewing Marcus Miller.
1: Well, certainly Miles is a classic example of somebody who, when he was starting off at your age, like uh, 19 years old playing with Charlie Parker, mm-hmm. and you look at the end of his career where he's playing uh, Cindy Lauper tunes or whatever and making them his own, mm-hmm. he certainly, I don't think he would ever go back and play My Funny Valentine.
2: No, he wouldn't play My Funny Valentine, but he'd play the current version of My Funny Valentine. Meaning, you know, the bebop guys were playing Broadway songs, they were playing pop songs mm-hmm. and just <laughs> stretching them and opening them up and showing people the possibilities of these pop songs because there was some beauty in those songs that maybe not everybody could hear. Mm-hmm. And some depth in these songs that maybe not everybody could hear. But Miles and Bird and all the jazz musicians who took these show tunes and these, um, these tunes that, uh, you know, can you imagine Miles walking in the studio and going, hey man, we're gonna play this song from this Disney film, Snow White. <laughs> Miles, come on, man, what? And Paul James was like, oh man. This yeah. is sweet, you know what I mean? And all the rest of us who heard that said, man, I would have never thought. And the combination of a tune that's part of America's soul because entertainment songs, you know, show tunes and pop songs, they go into America's soul. The combination of taking those songs that are part of you and then opening them up and showing you something that you never believed was
1: possible, that's one of the most magical things But you know the interesting thing when it comes from the artist, artist is attracted to a song as compared to a record label like when Bossa Nova came out. It's Mm -hmm. like everybody had to do a Bossa Nova. Coleman Hawkins has a Bossa Nova record. Yeah. Or um, I had read at some point that uh, Columbia Records wanted Monk to do a tribute to Blood, Sweat and Tears yeah, that yeah. dude's not in the music business, I'm sure,
2: right yeah. now, you know? But yes, you, you do have that. And that's something that every musician, if they stay around long enough, is going to have to deal with. You yep. know, we had Bossa Nova, we had Boogaloo, yep. right? I mean, everybody had a Boogaloo record. Sidewinder. We, yeah, Sidewinder. And we had uh, uh, funk, right? We had uh, disco. You know, there's a, there's a disco giant steps out there, you know what I mean? We had, um, we had techno, Herbie Hancock, Rocket, you know. We had um, hip-hop, Us Three, you know. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. And how you negotiate that pressure, because either you, you avoid it all the way around and just continue to play your thing, or you take on the challenge. Herbie Hancock took on the challenge. Mm-hmm. He won, you know what I mean? Because maybe it was him, he came to it naturally. Maybe some record company guy said, hey, man, you should try doing some, uh, you know, some breakdown beats, you know? But Herbie, and I've seen a lot of musicians do that, somebody gives him an idea, which is basically a stupid idea. The guy hasn't, he's not thinking deeply. And Herbie goes, and this is how Herbie is, either I just dismiss this guy as an idiot, or I go, well, if I ask myself to do that, how would I do it? Mm. And all of a sudden you get, and we as listeners know This guy came to this in an honest and deep way. This guy just did what the record company did.
0: Thanks so much for joining us tonight once again. Uh, those of you who have been listening to these interviews on Sunday nights uh, or on our uh, podcasts um, have really gotten an interesting education in a lot of different jazz players. Marcus Miller, a fascinating, fascinating person, fascinating musician. We want to thank, of course, the NYU Steinhardt School for their jazz interview series uh, with Dave Schroeder as MC and producers, Joseph Vella, Ed Barada. Shakeout Productions, made possible by a gift from Selma Geller. We want to thank Silvano Monasterios for the use of his Tropical Mirage as our theme. We want to thank Fernando uh, uh for helping us choose music, and his buddy Rafael Alvarez uh, for his great post-production work, for our musical director of the Jam Session, Cleus Brandal, and all of those who are involved in the Jam Session and WLI, WLIW FM radio. So thanks once again. Stay safe. Uh, Take care of each other, and from the Jam Session Radio Hour, good night.